0: The scripture reading this morning is taken from 1 Peter 5, verses 6 to 14, and it's on page 1297 in your pew Bible. Please stand, if you're able, for the reading of God's word. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kind of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to external glory in Christ, will, establish, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Amen. By Sylvanius, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. This is God's word.
1: Amen. Well, good morning again. Uh, if you have your Bibles, I hope that you'll keep them open to 1 Peter as we pray together this morning. God, we ask that as we uh, open your word this morning, that you would give us eyes to see you, ears to hear your voice, that you would help us to hear the message of the book of 1 Peter, that you would help us to understand what it means to stand firm in true grace, that you would help us to know that you are good always. We are your people, and you are our God, and we come before you in the name of your Son. Amen. Recently, I was stuck in traffic, uh, which seems to happen a lot. I was listening to an interview um, of the author of a new biography about Albert Einstein, and it was a fascinating interview, and even though a lot of it was way over my head, because this biography about Albert Einstein it seems to have been written for actual physicists Um, there were aspects of the interview that were really interesting and compelling to me. The book discusses much of what Einstein actually worked on, the contributions that he made to our understanding of the universe and his brilliance uh, revealed in the ideas that he developed. But what struck me was a part of the interview when the author of this biography talked about one of Einstein's earliest memories. At the age of four or five, Einstein recalls that he was shown a compass, by someone. And he was intrigued by it because it didn't behave in the same way as anything else he had ever encountered in his life. No matter which way he turned it or how hard he shook it, the needle would always end up pointing in the same direction. He was confused by this compass like most five-year-olds perhaps would be. I mean, I'm in my 30s and I feel like I barely have a tenuous grasp on how a, tenu- on, on how a compass works. So for a five-year-old, he was intrigued by what he was trying to figure out. For Einstein, this was a critical moment, and he later said, I can still remember that this experience made a deep and lasting impression on me. Something deeply hidden had to be behind things. And he credits that moment for being one which drove him to spend his life trying to better understand the universe that God had made. He didn't understand how it worked or why it worked. He could only see and know that it worked and that something deeply hidden was behind it. And there's great comfort to me in that idea, because we are driven to seek answers, to seek clarity, and to write things that we think have gone wrong. We want to understand why things are the way they are, and sometimes we just can't. Sometimes we look at the things we most desperately want to change or to understand, and we come to face the fact that something deeply hidden is behind things. Forces that are beyond our comprehension and are difficult for us to see clearly or understand. Perhaps the greatest example of this is one which Peter has spent the entire book of 1 Peter exploring. And this morning as we come to the very end of the book of 1 Peter, we see the themes of this short letter coming together. From its very first verse, in which Peter refers to Christians as elect exiles, Peter has been putting this difficult idea under a microscope. He's writing to those that he calls the elect, those who are chosen by God and called according to his purpose in the world. They've been shown grace and mercy and are welcomed into God's household. They are those whom God has called, we read in chapter 1, to be built up into God's holy temple, the place of his dwelling and his holy priesthood. They are those who set their hope fully on the grace That is brought to them by Jesus Christ. They are God's people, chosen and beloved by God. Yet in the very same breath, Peter also acknowledges that they are exiles. That's a word that carries some serious baggage in the Bible. It was a reminder of a very dark part, the darkest part of Israel's history, when God's people were exiled from the land that he had given them and held captive by brutal regimes who had kidnapped and enslaved them. And Peter is bringing that part of their history to mind from the very opening of this letter, written to a group of local churches who are struggling with the intensifying friction between them and their surrounding communities and broader cultures. It's a theme that is applied throughout the history of the church up to today, because all Christ followers live in a place that is not their home, as sojourners in a land that does not acknowledge Christ as King, in cities and nations that do not know their Creator and do not understand the gospel that these Christians proclaimed. And just as Christ promised His church has encountered persecution and trouble and suffering in His name. And already in the first century, that fiery trial has begun. Life for God's elect is that of exile. It is a life that is not free of persecution, nor of suffering in general. Hardship persists for God's people. Heartbreak persists. Illnesses persist. And knowing that God is sovereign... And that his authority is total, Christians from the very beginning have wrestled with the same questions. When circumstances that we dreaded have come to our doorstep or disaster that we feared comes into our lives or the lives of those we love, we naturally wonder why it's been allowed to go this way. We wonder why those who are God's elect, those who are his chosen, his beloved, his children are allowed to suffer like this why God's people who are promised God's deliverance experience such hardship that is the tension that Peter has spent the entirety of this book examining and beginning in chapter 4 verse 12 the final act of this letter has encouraged people to keep going to persevere to keep fighting therefore Peter says in chapter 4 verse 19 Let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. When suffering comes, which it will, and perhaps already has for many who are reading these words, trust God and do good. That is the message of this book. And it's an idea that conflicts with everything our instincts drive us to do. Faced with suffering, we recoil. Faced with trial and persecution for doing good, we become defensive. Faced with sorrow, we instinctually respond with bitterness, asking how a God who loves us would let such a disaster befall us or those we love. Yet, we are called to trust Him, to follow Him where He leads, even if that means walking into the jaws of suffering itself. And that is how Peter opens the last lines of this letter that we're looking at this morning. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, he says. Church history is full, chock full of stories of the saints who have done just that. Those who have accepted from God's sovereign hand lives of difficulty, lives that no one would envy. Because that is the call for all of God's people that we've seen throughout this entire book. Humbly go where God leads, even if it costs us everything to do it. And the history of the church is full of those who've done it. Not because they were more courageous than anyone else. Not because they were more religious than anyone else. They are not the heroes of the story that God is telling throughout history. They went and we go because God himself is the hero of the story that he's telling. His hand is mighty, according to verse 6. It's language chosen specifically to remind readers of a very specific and significant historical event. In the Old Testament, that language about God's mighty hand is used specifically to reference the way that God demonstrated his unmatched power and authority in bringing his people out of slavery in Egypt. Commissioning Moses in Exodus chapter 3, he warned him that Pharaoh would not release his people unless compelled by a mighty hand, and it would not be Moses' might that would compel Pharaoh to set the Israelites free. Even in uh, in other parts of the Old Testament, this language is used specifically to reference the Exodus event, to remind people of the way that God had proven his might and his love for his people. God's mighty hand is a reference for, or pardon this terrible, terrible pun, a shorthand for, his authority, his sovereignty, his power, and his judgment, all of which were revealed when he overwhelmed the nation that held his people captive. And reminded of God's might poured out on Egypt, those who are suffering in the first century church may feel, as they read this letter from Peter, they may feel that that mighty hand has turned against them because they are experiencing pain they had not anticipated. Yet Peter doesn't go there. He doesn't address that concern, not yet, though he will in this passage. He merely wants to remind us that God's hand is mighty. And it reminds me of a, a moment from C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia series when the main characters are first hearing about Aslan, the great lion, will set all things right and heal the shattered realm of Narnia. He is described to them as a ferocious lion. And the children hearing about him shudder to hear that such an intimidating creature with such terrifying power is coming. And they ask, but is he safe? And the reply comes, of course he isn't safe, but he is good. The God who overturned the mighty nation who held his people as slaves has proven he is not safe. His justice is real, his holiness is real, and his refusal to overlook evil is real. So he is not safe, but he is good. And his goodness is our hope if we look to him for rescue. Peter says, humble yourselves before the mighty hand of God so that at the right time he may exalt you. Humility before God's mighty hand is acceptance that he is still good even if everything I love in this world is taken away from me. It is the declaration that he is still good when I get a terrible diagnosis, when I lose someone that I love, when I struggle and I fall and I long for deliverance but I see none. And We are encouraged to have that humble posture toward God so that at the proper time, He may exalt you. It is the great paradox of Christianity that by laying down what we cling to, we receive from God what we could have never won for ourselves. It's what Jesus pointed to when he told his disciples that whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. All four gospel writers record Jesus' teaching. About laying down our lives at the foot of God's throne is where we find and receive true life. Humility before God is the willingness to lose everything and still know that He is good because He has given us Himself. That was more than academic for the first century church, just as it is for Christians in parts of the world today where persecution is real and devastating. And it's real for any Christian who trusts God for deliverance, for rescue, and for redemption from the pain of life in a broken world and yet still endures cancer or the pain of losing a loved one or the heartbreak of family brokenness. The pain we feel is very real and the God we worship is still good when we feel it. And it takes humility to say that when our pain is so real. And we endure now humbly trusting him through it all because doing so, in doing so, we await what he's promised for our future. Something deeply hidden is happening as we lay down our lives and take up from Christ's true life. We do that, according to Peter, by casting all our anxieties on him. We trust that he will give us what we need, if not always what we want, which we can do if we know If we truly know that he does care for us, which Peter points out to us at the end of verse 7. That's what it really boils down to. If we know that God cares for us, if our confidence in his affection for us is unshakable, then we will be able to cast our anxieties on him, to trust him in the midst of our suffering, to humbly declare that he is good even when we've lost everything else. And that's easier for us to do when everything in life is as we want it. When we are not suffering, but when we're faced with suffering, it is a different situation. When difficulties come, so do questions about God's care for us. And so Peter tells the church that they should be sober-minded, to be watchful, because your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. It's the second time in this short book that Peter has used the phrase sober-minded, And both times, it was in reference to threats that can be easily dismissed. Back in chapter 4, Peter reminded his readers that the end of all things is at hand, and that a day is coming when God will sit in judgment over everyone who's ever lived. And that reminder was followed by an encouragement to be sober-minded, to live in such a way that our lives and our perspectives are shaped by something that we know is true, even if we cannot see it yet. And just as in chapter 4, Peter's warning about something we can't see yet the great adversary of the church, the devil. And he does so with a second warning to be sober minded. It is a threat we might easily dismiss as more folklore than foe, but we do so at our peril. Scripture does not dismiss this threat, and neither should we. The devil, the adversary, of the church, according to this passage, is like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. In studying this passage, I read some scholars who think that Peter is trying to teach us something about the devil is an imposter, that he is a false king, because it is most often Jesus who is described as a lion in Scripture. So, is there something that Peter is trying to tell us here by referring to the devil as a roaring lion? I don't think that the context of this passage goes there it seems instead that Peter is simply thinking of something that we can easily understand is a threat, so that we will begin to grasp the threatening nature of our adversary. Lions are ferocious and fearsome predators, and facing one, every single one of us would not need to assess the danger that we were in. We wouldn't need to assess the seriousness of the situation, and Peter wants us to have a better, more complete understanding of what is threatening us now and how perilous the situation really is. And it's just as a lion would want to devour us, the devil himself will do likewise. But what makes him a threat is not his teeth or his claws. Instead, what makes him dangerous is the questions that he whispers to us late at night after we've had a horrible day. When we've lost everything and our worst fears have been realized, And he asks, are you sure that God really loves you? How could any God of love let such pain come into your life? If his love for you were real, wouldn't he have protected you from this? And if God is so mighty, shouldn't he have been able to stop this from happening in the first place? And if so, doesn't that mean that he doesn't love you at all? It's the lie that he most desperately wants us to believe. That God cannot really truly care about us if we have to endure this. That is the threat that Peter is trying to help us prepare for. Because all of us will face it at some point or another. Maybe after we've spent lifetimes trying to serve God, to live according to his word, and to worship him with our lives, yet tragedy strikes anyway. Maybe in seeing others suffer, those who least deserve the pain that they suffer with. We encounter the injustice of suffering that is prevalent in our world, devastating the lives of those whom we consider the most innocent or the most deserving of God's protection. And in those moments, we are tempted to believe the lie that God must not care after all. That is what it means to be devoured by the devil to believe the lie that God must not care after all. Moments like those are what Peter is trying to prepare the first century church to face. Because when suffering comes, as it will, he wants them to remember that God's hand is mighty, his goodness is absolute, that we await his ultimate rescue, and we know that he cares for us. So we resist the devil, we are prepared for the lies that he will tell and the ways that he will try to weaken our trust in God's love for us. We look around us as Peter does and we see that all of God's people likewise suffer. Peter himself would be martyred in his faith, crucified upside down in Rome according to early church tradition. Like many others in the first century, Peter followed Christ all the way to the foot of the cross. And Peter points, points to the fact That it is our brotherhood that suffers with us. Peter is actually the only New Testament author that uses that word, the word brotherhood, to describe the church. Um, Other ancient writings use that word to describe family relationships between literal brothers and sisters, but here it's used to describe the relationships that exist within the church. Back in chapter 2, Peter used that same word as part of an instruction for Christian conduct. For those who live as servants of God, who honor everyone and love the brotherhood. Christians are called to honor everyone, to honor the dignity of all people, to respect the image of God in all people, and to love the brotherhood. Just as we love those whom we call family, we are called those we are called to love those whom God has called and welcomed into his family, our brothers and sisters in Christ, who suffer with us when we struggle and who we suffer with in theirs. I think we are prone to feel alone and stranded and isolated when we face pain that it seems no one else could possibly understand, and maybe they can't. Maybe there is no one in your life who has faced the same sort of suffering that you're facing, but we are not alone. We are part of a brotherhood, a global church, who are resisting the devil along with us. The call is not to conquer him, but to resist him by being firm, by standing firm in our faith, confident that God is still good. That is our act of humility before the mighty hand of God. The book of James encourages Christians in a similar way. There is a war happening in each of us. He says, between a desire to obey God and a desire to succumb to temptation. And that battle will be won, not by being strong enough, but by being humble enough to seek God's grace. The humility that says, I can't defeat this enemy, I cannot defeat the roaring lion that's right in front of me, but I know who can, and I'm trusting him to do it. And so, like Peter, James quotes the same line, that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And that dependence is what leads to victory, which James makes clear in chapter 4, verse 7. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. There is victory over the devil's schemes, victory that comes when we humbly trust in a God we know is good, even when we suffer. And even when it's hardest to see that, When our vision is clouded by tears and the temptation to respond in bitterness, we can know that it is true by looking to the cross. We can know that God's love for us is sure, that His concern for us is true when we remember that His love for His Son is perfect, yet His Son suffered according to the perfect will of the Father. For all eternity, the love between the Father and the Son has been perfect. The concern for one another's glory was lacking in nothing. Yet Jesus endured the shame and the scorn of the cross according to the will of his Father. And it was not the result of a lack of love. It was the result of God's love for his people, for you and me. The Father's love for his Son was not diminished or cast aside in Jesus' suffering. So no no matter how much pain we endure in life, we can know that God has not abandoned us or neglected us or turned against us no more than he abandoned his son or neglected his son or turned against his son. The proof of God's love for us is in the fact that he was willing to give and did give his greatest treasure for us. That is exactly how we prove our love for one another so we understand the concept. If I say that I love Jessica, those words are just words until it costs me something to prove it. If she called me and told me that her car had broken down and that she was stranded on the side of the road somewhere, but my reply to her was, yeah, but I'm in the middle of a really good sandwich right now. So, good luck. How much do I really love her? We prove our love for one another by willingly paying what it costs to live it out so we can know beyond doubt that God does care and that his love is sure because he's proven it already in the willing sacrifice of Christ to give us life. There is no greater validation of God's love than that, and we need only remember the sacrificial love of Christ to confirm what we may be tempted to doubt. So, Peter says, humble yourselves before this God, It's something we can do in knowing and in remembering that he humbled himself first. Taking on flesh and coming to live among us and die as one of us. We can face the storms that will come, knowing that we are following a Savior who himself faced a storm of suffering. And we can do so with the assured, hopeful anticipation that God will carry us through it. Peter reminds us that after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you into his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. It may seem like Peter is trivializing our suffering by saying that it lasts for a little while. Many of us know that some pain lasts a lifetime. Some things are easier to heal from and some we never heal from. Some of us fight with illnesses or financial hardships for years and years, wondering if relief will ever actually come. So is Peter making a light of our pain when he says that it lasts for a little while? I don't think that that's the case. I think Peter knew how much grief some of his readers were already walking through and that he himself would likely face. But he knows that in comparison to what lies ahead, That this truly is a little while that our entire lives are as james put it like a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes and so with eternity in view our lives here truly are momentary though that certainly does not make them trivial so peter points us toward the reminder that god has called us not to glory and ease and trouble-free lives right now that into his eternal glory in Christ. The healing that we hope for is one that is promised and paid for, but not yet fully applied. We are redeemed and ransomed from this pain, yet we are not set free from it yet. The God who calls us into his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish all who trust in his promise to do so. He is just, He is mighty, he is safe. He is not safe, but he is good. And our hope in his goodness is not just wishful thinking, but it is rooted in his proven love for us in the finished work of the cross and the hope of the empty tomb. We humble ourselves before a mighty God, receiving from his mighty hand all that he purposes and wills, trusting in his care for us and knowing that he is good even when we feel the sting of this broken world. And we do so knowing that what lies ahead is better, and the restoration that Christ himself established when he conquered death and the corruption of sin is better. He has walked through suffering ahead of us and into glory, and he calls us to follow him and do likewise, to walk through suffering and into glory. There are moments in our lives, I think, when that goes from something that we may understand intellectually to something that we understand in a much deeper way. Many of you know that Jessica and I are currently expecting our first baby. And the last several months have been full of learning experiences for both of us, just as I'm sure the years ahead will be (laughs) full of learning experiences for us. Um, And one of those experiences came for me when we were at a doctor's appointment early last summer. One of our first appointments, when we found out that Jessica was pregnant, and the doctor told us that we could do all kinds of tests to determine the likelihood that our baby would be born with certain complications or genetic disorders. And even though I think I knew intellectually that complications might arise, for some reason that doctor's appointment caused me to comprehend that possibility in a much deeper way. And over the subsequent weeks and months, I've wrapped my brain around the fact that things often don't go according to our plans, that the way I imagine it may not be the way that it goes. And for me, the stakes have never been this high. I understood intellectually that there are sometimes complications and disorders and things like that. But I suddenly came to understand that part of the world's brokenness in a new and deeper way. And so I pray for our baby every night that God would cause him or her to grow strong and be healthy and that God would keep Jessica healthy. I cast my anxieties on God knowing that he cares about me and about Jessica and about our baby. But knowing that the world is broken, I know that things may not go the way that I imagine them when I think about the years ahead of us as a family. And I need to know right now, that God is always good and that his care for me, for Jessica and for our baby will not be less if we face some unforeseen suffering that we have not prepared for. We need to remember that God's love for us has been proven already, that the assurance of our hope has been secured for us already, that the bright future promised to us has been prepared for us already. The work that proves God's care for us is already done. And I need to learn that right now. I need to get it into my bones right now so that if darkness comes, I will not believe the lie that God has turned his back on me. This God who has promised good to me is able to bring it to pass. And so we proclaim with Peter to him be the dominion forever and ever. Even though my desire is to be in control, I desire to have dominion, to do things the way that I would draw them up. I know that God's love for me is steadfast, His love for me is proven, and He is able to bring good to me. So I declare to Him be dominion forever and ever. He is good, He is sovereign. He loves us, and his faithfulness will not fail. He is mighty, and even though he is not safe, he is good. It's the message that Peter wanted the ancient church to hear, and hearing it, to stand firm in the true grace of God. And as he signs the end of this letter, we're reminded of an important detail that Bruce touched on last week. By Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, which is to say the Roman church, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings, and so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. It can be easy, I think, to skip over the last lines of many New Testament letters, which are full of names, the names of people often lost to history. But their presence in these lines remind us that standing firm in true grace the grace that sees us through all suffering into the eternal glory on the other side, standing firm in grace is something we ought not to do alone. God has given us community. Brothers and sisters who carry us when we can't keep going, who come alongside us when we are suffering to remind us that God is good and his love is true. The people of the first century, the first century church, they needed their brothers and sisters just as we do today. We need need people to remind us of the gospel when we are prone to forget it and to remind us of God's proven love when we are tempted to believe the lie that he doesn't care. This week as we celebrate Thanksgiving, we know that in Christ we have much to be thankful for even if there is little we are thankful for elsewhere. We remember that even if we lose everything else, we will not lose Christ who calls us into his glory. The message of the book of First Peter is layered and complex, but it is also stunningly simple. Let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Because there is something deeply hidden at work when we do. As we lay down our lives in humility, losing everything, we receive from Christ abundant life in glory. Let's pray together. God, we humble ourselves this morning in your presence. We humble ourselves before your mighty hand, knowing that you are sovereign knowing uh, that you care for us, that your love for us is proven and secure. We rest in that this morning. We stand firm in that true grace, refusing to believe the lie that you have turned away from us, that you have neglected us, that you don't care about us. We refuse to believe that lie and we stand firm in true grace this morning, knowing that your love for us is proven and true. We do so as your people, called by your grace into your presence this morning. And we lift this prayer in the name of your Son. Amen.